0: Good morning and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in depth look at the early Schoenhauer glosses. This is episode three of our second season on MS 3227A, the Paul House book, Dobringer, pseudo Dobringer, whatever you want to call it. And today we're going to be looking at the text itself in a little bit more detail. Joining me today are our panel of Michael Chidister. Stephen Cheney and TQ, and also Shadow the Cat <laughs> on Steve's video stream there. Very nice. Um, what have we been up to since we are last on the show? Uh, Michael, that's been a, a week or so.
1: <laughs> I have been buried in mire for the most part, trying to get the facsimile ready to start production. And also trying to navigate the biggest book sale of the year for me, um, which has now ended. So by the time you hear this, and in fact, as of midnight this morning, it's over. So there's no more discounts. But trying to get the word out, not only for my books, but for everybody else who publishes through Lulu um, and get more books sold.
2: And that's been my whole week. Cool.
1: Also, there were American holidays, I believe, of some kind, Hi. although I don't really observe them.
2: You were very grateful. I did
1: see some family. And Mostly Kendra's
2: family. Steve, what have you been up to? Since, uh, I guess, the last time
0: I yeah, was... it was like February? <laughs> Who knows?
3: I think it was when well, we did that uh, episode on Talhofer and Told. Which yep. was like May or something. I don't know. I might have started. I might have started uh, our, our club meetings back up. by then my uh, fencing club. But if not, we started back up in May, and we've been going. You mostly practicing outside. Um, and we have we got our indoor venue back uh, for Fridays starting in October. So that's been nice. Fencing with a mask is not everybody's favorite thing.
1: Um, it's pretty miserable.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, at at first, but I think I think it gets easier over time. I think the first time it's really like a shock, like like you're mm. gonna die. But I think <laughs> that it does get easier
2: over time. Um, cool.
0: And you yeah, just I, published an I, article analyzing double hits.
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I wrote that like a few weeks ago, but but T just uh put it on his website. So it's available now for, for You wrote that all. like
4: 2 months ago to be clear. Um I've just been really slow.
3: Yeah, and like at first it was just sitting there and like I wasn't going to publish it at all, but
0: I'm glad that you did. And speaking of T, what have you been up to, T?
4: Um, well, mostly I have been fencing foil, uh, which disgusting. is disgusting, but also really fun. Um, uh, I went to a tournament this weekend and got smashed by one of the members of the British World Cup squad. So that was a good time. Um, uh, turns out that like good modern fencers are really, really, really good. Um, on a HEMA adjacent, uh, front, I probably since we last did a recording that I featured on, um launched a website. Um, you can find it at uh, um and I'm sure we'll link it in the show notes. Um, and there's a bunch of articles about coaching, um, old workshop handouts, and a few guest articles, including a couple from Steve um, on there. Uh, so if you're interested in coaching and teaching questions, uh, I would humbly suggest you check it out. Uh, I think there's some pretty good content. That is my main human thing. Um, oh, and if you're in France, I'm teaching a workshop in Paris. Uh, in the, on the second weekend of December, uh, so go check that out. That's all for me. Very nice.
0: All right. So today's episode, is, oh, I haven't been up to anything. I've been working night shifts. Been playing some Halo Infinite. Thanks, listeners. Um, today's episode, we've talked around the text, the source, a lot for the last couple of episodes, so I really wanted to do a a deep dive into it today.
2: And where should we start? At the beginning? Do-do-do.
0: So there's a preamble before it even gets to the poem.
1: I think we said we were going to start with talking about the overall distribution of gloss content before diving in, right?
0: Yes, because some sections are not glossed at all. Some are very heavily glossed. Um, In a previous episode, you mentioned that the the way that the Zettel, the poem, was written down was like uh, he'd write down the Twitter house section of the Zettel and leave a couple of pages and then write down the the Scheitelhau section of the Zettel and a couple of blank pages to to fill in the gloss. And some of that got yeah. filled in, some didn't. There was a bit of hypertexting um where a bit of text would be added where there was room and little notes saying that it should be moved about. And
2: Yeah, so what we
1: what we get is some sections that are super long. Um and even one that had extra pages sort of shoved into the binding to make more space to write, and then some that get ignored completely. And others that overflow their pages, especially once he gets to revisions, so he has to like write things sideways up the margin of the page, and then put little carrots indicating where it was should be inserted, and so on, and down at the bottom and at the top, just all over the place, squeezing in extra text. So the longest section is the general lesson, the common lesson, the Gemeindevera. And the other really long ones would be the Tzornhau and the Spreckfenster. And I guess the Tverhau is, is about two pages. Um, most of the rest of it is only a couple paragraphs. If anything. So, so those are the ones. And then about half of them are unglossed. So we'll go through individual section by section, but just you know at the to lead off with the ones that are unglossed would be uh paging through this book, the breaking the four openings, the Scheitelhau and uh, the Feller, <laughs> sort of. We'll we'll yeah. talk about that. But the Scheitelhau doesn't have a gloss. The Nagreissen, the Uberlaufen, the Absatzen,
0: Zucken, Dirtschlaufen, Abschneiden.
1: And then Hanging, which is also where Spreckfenster is, surprisingly has tons, but not about hanging. And then the Winden section, again, is sort of wishy washy. Does it have glass or not? Hard to say. There's text there that may be the glass for it. So about half of the Hauptstuka, maybe more than half, and one of the five strikes. We have absolutely nothing. And the rest of it is longer or shorter for reasons that we'll probably never know. But a lot of it is sort of incomplete, like he started writing his ideas down and maybe didn't finish, but the project ended before he got back to it. And then hmm. some of them are
2: exhaustively complicated. Yeah. I'm looking at you hanging. Um... So,
3: I think the, the most, um, I guess the most noticeable difference here is like the front loading of all the information in the gloss. So, it's like in RDL, you have the common lessons, and like each little section gets like a little gloss, and then they move on to the next section. But in this, it's like the common lesson text, and then he just kind of talks about fencing. Like that's where you get most of the uh most of his system. Like, he immediately starts talking about like the windings, which in RDL they don't really <laughs> like I mean they touch upon the windings in the uh yeah, Zornhau, but uh by and large they talk about the windings in the winding section.
1: Yeah, so I think it's useful well this is yeah. the part where we talk about this. I think it's it's interesting because in the in the previous season of this podcast, we talked about recurring themes and how things like the proper use of long point, for example, or the spread fenster. Even though the name isn't used until the end, you see themes that start appearing um mm-hmm. where sort of the the shooting the point in comes up again and again in new contexts. And here he's sort of putting all the pieces together at the beginning into one picture and not breaking it up like that. So there's no yeah. progression in terms of how he teaches it. He wants to give you the full explanation in one go. He also doesn't break the title up by by verses yeah. the way that other ones do. He gives you the entire section of it in one blob, And then so he'll that's... just tell you which part he's talking about here and there.
0: So just to give a, a concrete example of that, we said that um, uberlaufen doesn't have any gloss. But in the the preamble, before he even gets any of his Zettel down on the page, he's talking about why it's better
2: to attack the the high openings rather than the low ones. Yeah. Um. But there's also some added
0: some extra theory because why not? in the the general lesson section at the start, which is that he adds a, a section of poem on virtues or attributes. So for those of you who listened to the, the Sinister Pastor episode with Connor Kemp Cow, he was talking about the, the attributes that Uh, Vardy and Fiore have well MS3227A has them as well so there's audacity, swiftness prudence, astuteness, ingenuity acumen, concealment
2: measure, obscuration and scouting so what can I say the author of this poem refers back to those a few different
0: times or refers back to virtues at at the conclusion as well which, as far as I can remember, isn't in RDL.
2: Yeah, no, his list of virtues of offense are
1: are unique to his teaching, as far as I know. I mean, Paulus Cal has
0: some, but they're like... Yeah, but they aren't these. these
1: Yeah, Paulus Cal tells you to have the heart of the lion and the eyes of a hawk and the feet of a hind but he doesn't give you this sort of exhaustive list of virtues like prudence and reason and moderation.
2: Um, yeah, the,
1: the, that sort of virtue-based teaching is not really part of the Lichtenauer tradition by and large. I also associate it more with Fiore, and I guess body, although body sucks. But, um,
0: um, another Clearly, this is the influence of
2: scholasticism, right? Uh, sure. Mm. Is it? I don't know Should what scholasticism, scholasticism is. Isn't it like
4: I'm not going to tell you what scholasticism <laughs> is, I'm just trolling. <laughs>
0: oh, okay. Uh, for, for the listeners who aren't aware, scholasticism is like a, a movement in scholarship, like a uh if we talk about the Enlightenment as the time when people started getting really into science and then applying scientific in inverted commas scientific thinking to everything else in life, scholasticism is a medieval pattern of thought, I guess uh which started in the uh, i think like eleventh century dealing with approaching texts especially ancient texts in the bible i've probably totally mangled that
1: i think if we're going to go by analogy from the enlightenment this could be described as a time when they were trying to apply greek philosophy to literally everything in life and they developed a whole complicated way of teaching and thinking and arguing that was based heavily on greek philosophy and the way greek philosophy influences their interpretation of the bible um, and those were sort of the mainstays, but it has a very a whole textual tradition and um, literary tradition that goes along with it, uh, and it is where the idea of writing glosses of existing texts really uh, is developed in Europe. It's older than that, but that's when it became like the predominant type of academic writing.
0: Yeah, um, and tease trolling because of Jamie James Aikert's book, which if you want to do a deep dive, is probably worth buying. I haven't been able to make heads or tails of it yet. But I, I have, read the whole no, thing in one time. day,
1: but yeah, I don't understand a lot of it, some of his arguments.
4: Mostly the reason I'm trolling is because people talk a lot about it without actually like knowing really anything about scholasticism. Um, and I am not accusing Aikert of this, to be clear, but um, I think a lot of the time when people are talking about stuff, Uh, Like this, they're essentially parroting an idea they've heard a summary of somewhere else without actually having an understanding of what it is, which is why it's occasionally funny to mock. Uh, That's all.
1: I'm, I'm shocked that you could say something like that happens in HEMA. That was a long explanation for an offhand comment.
2: Yeah. All right. I, well, I think
1: it's, I, I, I only explained it because it is something that's relevant maybe to this text so if you're going to dive into this text, you'll probably see it up in writing and you'll probably hear about it and that's what it is. It's Yeah. I wasn't trolling, I was being serious, but I think it's overblown. There are some connections to Greek philosophy, but they're not very big, in my opinion and it might just be cultural baggage that the guy who wrote this wasn't
2: even really into Greek philosophy. Um, Anyways,
1: we can move on.
0: Yes. Let's talk about something that Steve does care about. Let's talk about which foot you should have in front of you when you fence. Yeah.
2: So, so Steve, oh. which side should you fence from?
3: Okay. So, I guess... Um, well, I mean, as as an RDL practitioner, I think that if you claim to be practicing RDL, you should be trying to make fencing with the left foot forward work. And if you fence always with the right foot forward, then I don't think you're trying hard enough to fence to your source. I don't care how many shield howls you do a day. If you're, if you're fencing right foot forward, I think you can going to be trying harder. However, with 3227 um, I think it does mention that you should set the left foot forward when you fence and fence from your right, but I think there's I don't I don't know. I wouldn't be as hard on somebody who fences with the right foot forward if they claim to be studying 3227A. Because it's not referenced a super huge amount of times. It's just there's like one comment that says, that's from your right, put the left foot forward. Um, and then the pieces don't really specify. Uh, whereas in RDL, almost every single piece specifies that you put the left foot forward. Yeah. But it does have I don't think
1: you're a... ever told to put your right foot forward, though. It's
3: true.
2: It
0: does have a weird couplet about if you want to fence strongly, then fence down from your left. And originally it said down from your right, and then that was crossed out.
1: But that's in reference to left-handed fencers.
0: Uh,
1: Or whatever the verse, you know, fence not left if you are right, refers to if it's not handedness. But yeah, he adds an extra couplet to that quatrain that says um, fence not left if you're right. Um, and if you're left, then you will fence much weaker on the right. And then he assa- and then he adds as if that's not clear enough. So you should always fence down from the left. But I don't think he's talking about right-handed people there. Yeah, he's just sort of reiterating what was already said. Author through 327A's gloss so was a lefty confirmed. <laughs> right. Clearly well, this is all designed for left-handed people. It's just not very clear about it.
3: Well, if that's true, and he says set the left foot forward, then that means...
0: You're fencing over your leading foot. Right. Yeah. The
3: left
1: foot is the right foot of a left-handed person. It's true.
3: So maybe there's something to that. I, I, I'm I, looking at the guard descriptions here, and he doesn't say anything about the feet when he describes the guards.
2: Huh.
0: As
3: I'm like, oh, this is the one where you put your sword on the ground. This is the one where you're in a hangar.
0: As, as Harry would say, based.
1: Yeah. Well, right. Only if you're if you're lefty, then all the advice about stepping to the right should be interpreted differently too, shouldn't it?
0: No, yeah, that's about stepping into the. No, I, I think that, behind
1: behind that. The secrets of of this whole text. Yeah. That's probably thing
3: um, that annoys me the most. So, okay, I know we're not supposed to talk about whether it's good or bad until episode five. <laughs> um, by and large, I think it's good, but one of the things that annoys me the most about Three two two seven A, is that it always says to go directly to the target, but it also says to step to the right. If you're stepping to the side. You're not going directly to the target.
1: Well, your sword goes direct. Your feet
3: don't.
4: Come on. The two the the two ways I've seen that circle tried to be squared before, and both of them are kind of plausible. <laughs> one of them is that like, um, one of them is the idea that like, if you're if you're just like cutting a like imagine you're like cutting a tatami mat or something. It's actually kind of easier to do it. Uh, if it's like a little bit to your to your inside, not like dead in front of you. So stepping slightly to the side lets you do like your optimal cut. Um and the other one is Adrian's like you go forward and then you basically like you, you hit with a ballistic passing step and you recover offline. Um and that's like a nice way to square the circle. Um, that actually seems to work in practice. So
1: you mean I, like if you're backing off to the side sort
4: of No, like you, so you you're doing a you're doing a BPS right so you you hit with the yeah. you hit before your feet pass and then you pass as the recovery. So you pass forward. But oh. you basically as your feet are crossing you push a little bit sideways. So you go straight forward to begin with and then move off diagonally and finish it like 1 to 1 o'clock or so. Um, with some
0: nice hip engagement. Yeah,
4: with some nice hip engagement. So, the idea is that instead of like, you know, like if you're stepping forward, right, you, you your feet come to parallel and then they finish. So that's your step. And here, your feet come to parallel and then you push out diagonally. It's so it's like, sh- um, it's actually quite but, a fun mechanic uh, worth trying.
3: Yeah, I think it definitely works. I do it sometimes. But, um, I don't know. I, it just seems like when he talks about stepping to the right, it seems like he's doing it because he wants to like outflank the other person. Hmm. And if you're doing the straight cut with the recovery to the right, you're not outflanking them. You're just going, you're still hitting straight in. It's just that during your recovery, you're maybe avoiding their counterattack or getting a better angle for follow-ups or whatever. So I don't
1: know. So this is me shooting from the hip here, and I have only read one single instance just now because I just had this idea. But there's a kind of footwork that uh, I know Jess Finley teaches, and she's not here today. And I've played around with quite a lot, which is based on primarily on the "Go Left with Right" verse, in which the idea is from left foot forward, you step with your right foot, and then you withdraw um off to one side or the other and usually to your right side. So you do a sort of a pivot on your right foot once you have done your passing step and right. then you pass backwards off to your right. And I wonder if you could possibly stretch the text to describe that.
0: Almost I like a triangle was... step or
1: yeah like a triangle but you're actually backing out of distance again with it. So the idea is you clash against your opponent. It's it's sort of Jack Gassman describes it as being similar to horse fighting. Where you have sort of one instance of engagement, and then you're immediately go- exiting distance again, and you can do fun drills where you see how much work you can get done within the space of those two steps, um, but you're exiting distance on that
4: second step. Yeah, I think either, you either of hit real. your opponent
1: or having not hit your opponent.
4: You end up with a movement pattern where it's like the left foot comes forward, then the right foot comes forward, then the like the left foot comes out behind and you, like you circle around basically. So you do like this circle. That... Comes tangent to them at a point. Um, yeah, and so, I mean, that, could,
3: that that can be a good follow-on to like the step that we were talking about before, where you hit yeah. and then go to the side, yeah, and that then can you. Be a nice continuation. For
1: and I wonder if I, I have to go look at all the instances of instructions to go to the right and see if they contradict that. But that would be a viable way of stepping. That could also be described as always going to the right with it. I think there's, t-
3: there's two. There's one in the common lessons and one in the Zornhow that I saw from my cram reading for this episode.
1: Um, well, we should come back with this in episode five and see what we think. Yeah, Let's take sure. this as a homework assignment.
2: Um,
3: okay. That's a difference. So RDL does not say always step to the right. 7
1: even though they often do, though that spring to the right is certainly a staple of the five strikes. I'm accept the shield. Help!
0: I'm not convinced it is because it's been a long time since I it's
4: I did my cramming
0: cramp. on springs.
4: It's in the twer. It's not really in the Scheitel. Um, um, it's not really in the shield. It's not in the zorn. Yeah. It's only so, in some of the plays of the Krump.
0: So, so the twer also has. A lot of springs to the left, with the as a follow-up after the initial engagement, and jumping
3: to the side is crump yeah, and sphere. Yeah, they're both counter attacks.
0: The the shield and the shaitel are both at them, from what yes. I can remember. Um, and then there's an awful lot of springing around people's legs in wrestling and things, so
3: which is to both sides
1: so examining the the text um which maybe i should have done before i started talking but when have i ever done that it looks like the uh schiller and the scheidler are both spring spring into him not necessarily spring to the right so the spring to the right is just a
2: crimp in the chair and like you said not always but but often
1: So that's interesting. Um, but that idea of going to the right isn't some of RDL then, we can say. It's certainly a way that they tell you to step, but not the way.
4: Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing which Steve pointed out, which I think is relevant, is that when RDL is talking about it, Chrome and Fair, in particular, the places where it's mentioned, are both when they're being used as counterattacks, um, which is quite a different, like, that's different to trying to attack with offline footwork. Attacking with offline footwork is where it gets really problematic because you're trying to close distance while not moving, while not closing distance optimally. Basically, like you know, you're you're going towards your opponent slower than you otherwise would be, um, or less far than you otherwise would be. Um, when they're coming to you, moving sideways becomes very, very powerful indeed. So that's an interesting, like an interesting variation. And I think the you see people do offline footwork quite frequently as a counterattack uh, mm. piece of footwork seeing them do it as their core offensive footwork is a lot rarer. Um. Yeah.
0: Or people, but also the closer you are to somebody, the more angulation you get for one step, which is why when people are doing parry across in the pocket, they can circle each other quite often, but at distance it doesn't make much sense. All right. I'd like to to wrap up this footwork tangent and move this conversation forward. So Zornhouse section is different from RDL because it's presented. Oh,
1: uh, let's, let's go back to the general lesson, because there's one other thing that's worth pointing out, which yep. is um, people look at, and this is going to be me on my soapbox for just a second, and you guys can agree or disagree or add your own comments. Um, look at it as though it's this bizarre teaching that's not present in rdl um, but what we said at the beginning was he glosses the entire settle at once so he doesn't break it up by specific verse teachings and i think if you look at all of the teachings in the gemeine Lera in rdl and you try to do them all at once it ends up being something very similar to what we see in terms of his forschlag and notschlag so he's sort of wrapping that all up into one big teaching instead of breaking it out into small lessons. But, you know, if you um, set your left foot forward and step with the right and you strike from your right side and you strike with the point in front of the face and then take the Zechreur and you do it by taking the four, you end up with something that is not contradictory to what he's explaining with schlag and schlag. So it seems like he's taking that and trying to make it bigger and I mean, maybe he's giving it exactly as much attention as it should get as the common lesson, right, the basic teaching. But he certainly is elaborating it a lot and trying to really um, emphasize a lot of nuance to it that's not an RDL. But I think the outline of it is also what's being described in the individual lessons of the Lemas. So I don't think he's innovating here. Um out of whole cloth, he's just sort of elaborating what's probably the same core teaching that's present there. Uh, so
3: does that makes sense. Yeah. Um okay, so four and oxlog. Um as to what you were saying about it being consistent with the RDL, I think I agree. And I think um, or like with ideas that are presented in RDL, and I think it's um one of my favorite things actually that I've been thinking about with RDL is the decision-making process so um, and actually I this was made more clear to me after reading make the cut by John Chow which is a uh, modern Sabre book but he quotes 3227a a couple times in it, and he talks about the force log log and he talks about the idea of so no, your move, and then your like your automatic follow up, and then a backup plan in case either of them fail. And to me, that's and he like references Knock, Slug with that. Um, and to me, that's cool. the same as we see in like RDL as well. Like you think that Howe. so like they cut in Orin-Hau is Your move, the the yeah, stab is your follow up, and then the Namen or the winding is your backup, so have the same decision making process one, two, and then you know, whatever. However, um, four and knock are not for a knock, and 3227A says that they are
2: for a knock, and that is a difference. That is a difference.
3: So I would say <laughs> I would say yes, the, the framework of foreshog and knocks exists in RDL, but it's is implicit. not the decision making process.
1: Do you have a concise way of expressing what you think the how it's not far enough? Why it's not far enough?
3: Yeah, because for a knock is like role that the defensers take in in rdl so you have one person attacking and they're in the four and one person defending and they're like in the knock whereas foreslag and knock slog um either person can like do the log, and then either person can do a knock slog you know the same person who did a foreslag can do a knock slog or if the person yeah. it, says, it says in the book, if the person parries you really well, then they can do a slog and they've uh, and then you failed because you didn't do your slog fast enough or whatever.
1: Right. So I see what you're saying. My, I think it's slightly different. Um I think I, I agree with what you're saying. I would say that it's slog could be conceived of as the strike that the person in the four is doing, but knock schlag is a much bigger thing than just the strike that the person in the knock is doing. Because the person who is in the four can also do a knock schlag. So in the teachings on knock in RDL, we have this idea that it's what you do after you parry to attack your opponent. That's fencing in the knock. If you parry and then attack. Mm, mm, I, um, I I, whereas, I disagree. Oh. I think that's explicit in the text that okay. Knock is when you when your opponent forces you to parry and then you yeah. attack
4: him. Well, knock is when your opponent forces you to parry. Ah uh, Ringex says that if you then attack him first uh, after that, you've taken the vor by doing so right. whereas... Like, uh, I that, mean that's where that whole idea comes from.
1: the relationship of of four and knock in that last sentence in each gloss is murky. And I think Ring is wrong um but (laughs) if we look every gloss expresses that differently we've talked about this in a previous lesson right um (laughs) whereas donzig says you counter his before with your after and lev says you seize his before with your after um or maybe that's ring deck uh no that lev says you take the before with the after so donzig donzig is the one that says that you're actually still after but you're countering before and that's how I usually think of it, even though I don't like Danzig, but I think that's, but I like that. Um, so, but anyways, Nakhschlag is just anything that happens after that initial attack. So it's clearly broader than the core idea of Nah that's in RDL. Um, but I think that in terms of what it's for, we could see more parallels. So he's clearly going in his own direction, outlining a fencing framework that keys on the words for and not, but is not sticking to what RDL would say is the concept.
3: Yeah, I think he makes it part of his his decision-making framework in a way that RDL doesn't explicitly describe, but
2: is present in the plays of it, I guess. Okay, the... that's all I wanted to to point out. We talk I think it's about soft less... and hard now? Talk about what, sorry?
3: Soft and hard.
0: Yeah, sure. You can talk about being hard.
3: Okay. We're not we're not ready for the Zornhow yet. I don't know if we're ever <gasps> <ready. laughs> This, yeah, is, all yeah. the, well, this is all the interesting stuff. All the stuff yeah. is in the common lessons in, our, in
1: uh, 3227A. Yeah, so yeah. All, all the content. Yeah. Right. The common lesson is like 10 pages long, just if you haven't read it yet.
3: So, an idea that exists in 3227A that does not exist in RDL is the idea that when your opponent is hard, you are soft. And when your opponent is soft, you are hard. And um, the idea of soft and hard obviously exists in RDL, and you have different choices for whichever one your opponent is. But we're never ever told to be soft or be weak or anything like that in RDL. If your opponent is strong, you be stronger against. You strengthen with the long edge and push them down. But in 3227A, uh, 2, 2, he explicitly says if your opponent's hard, be soft and let them push you aside and do whatever.
0: And that, that kind of rings true for many people. People see parallels in judo and that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, a lot of Asian arts really get into that paradigm a lot, is my understanding. But... I don't like um, it. A lot of people in HEMA also just take that as gospel, um, even if they don't study seven a because there's something intuitive about it, I guess, that, you know, it's paired opposites. And people love paired opposites. Um, but the plays in RDL don't really back that up. Like, that's not advice. And that's why, one of the reasons why I'm sad about the breakdown of which plays are missing from this book, which helps Because there are some that I bet we, we can get more interesting lessons on being soft against your opponent's hard bind if he'd actually done the whole thing. Um, but as it is, he leaves that sort of, that teaching half formed. He doesn't really give
2: us a lot of good examples of it.
3: Yeah, I think one of the big things... So one of the... uh, I guess the clearest technique that would be, like, being soft if they're hard would be the schnappen people. So, like, the idea they impact your sword hard and you let them push it and swing around and hit. Um, yeah. But even that, like in Lev, schnappen is never actually described like that. Schnappen is when you're laying in a low guard, your opponent falls upon your sword. You're kind of
0: around you your
3: sword to get around their sword. You're not You're not swinging around because they gave you hard pressure. You're getting around their sword and coming down on top of them.
1: You could so, you could also describe Abnemen as being soft against hard, but that's not quite the setup that's actually in the text. It's how it plays out many times, but it's not the instructions that you're given.
3: Yeah, you're just it's, you're 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 going around like you're yeah. going yeah. around a barrier, I guess is what I would say.
1: But three two two seven eight includes some interesting advice about being soft to lead your opponent's sword away from you, and then renewing your attack. And I don't even 100% know what he's talking about there, and I would love to have actually gotten some technical instruction on when that's applicable. Because when I try to do that, it often does not work the way I have planned. So it kind of sounds like sword rubbing, and it kind of sounds like some kind of Tai Chi type action. And I'm curious if there's a way to actually make it viable in fencing, and I haven't found it yet, really. But he had, he certainly revisits it a couple times further on in the text that if your opponent is hard, you need to be soft because that's the way to defeat him. And I don't know what that means.
2: Uh, are we ready to talk about the Zornhound now? Yeah, I am.
0: Good. Yeah,
1: you a for us?
2: <laughs> Sorry, no.
0: Thank you, T. Thank you so much. All right, Zornhau, um, it's different from RDL because it's presented as one technique being done after another, so a sequence of plays rather than decisions being made. Yeah, he uh, does
1: the abnamen and then he follows it up with Bistair Kervider as a continuation if the abnamen fails.
0: The, be stronger against, yeah. And he really emph- the author really emphasizes um, attacking one target after another. Does... Is the Zornhau how in this still a, a parry and then a riposte, or is it totally different?
4: Also, he has the leg attack in here, doesn't he?
0: He does have he a does. cut to the leg from the bind, yes. Having told you to attack high, yes.
4: Zorn um, Zorn how
3: the base. the base technique itself seems pretty much the same. Okay. Like right against their sword and stab and
2: Yeah, um, when somebody interestingly... begins to attack at you with an overheat. You You do this zorn how against.
1: So um, the idea the idea of doing the plays in sequence rather than as a decision tree also comes up in Paulus Cal. So that's one that's not unique to this guy's teaching, but it is sort of a minority view. It's not RDL at all. Um, but Paulus Cal shows uh, the uh, the stronger against thrust from the opposite side after his obname and suggesting that it's a continuation, although he doesn't have enough words to. Make that concrete. Yeah, um, but he seems to be showing obneem into the opposite side and then go for the thrust on that side. Um, so that could be just an alternate interpretation of Lichtenauer that was out and
4: around. Doesn't Le Kuchner have something like that as well, or have I made that up? I know Le Kuchner does some slightly weird things with his winding and continuations from the zorn because he has such a short blade.
1: I bet but he I can't does, but I don't where remember. they
4: are. And he does me I had uh, a handy facsimile. Yeah,
3: so he does like he cuts in and then he winds to the left and then he winds to the right. Um he winds to the left and then if they parry that he winds to the right, and if they parry that then he takes away above on So he just adds like an extra step, I guess.
2: What if they parry that?
3: Well then uh, like, hmm. die. Oh, Never.
2: To, to be honest, oh.
0: I don't give half an L about Lakushner.
4: Oh. Lakushner will be season three, right?
0: N- Maybe. It's
1: never. because he's the priest, isn't it?
0: Um, um But the the Zornhow here does have half an L. What's an L?
3: According to this book by Michael Chittister, an L is three handbreadths.
1: Or. The length of someone's elbow to fingertips, which was one cubit. considered to be the same as three-hand lengths, breads, what? or six-hand.
0: Okay, so basically it's a unit of distance. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Oh.
1: but the, the tricky thing is that, that it's it was a standardized unit of distance for commerce. So every city would have its own set of weights and measures, and an L would be something they would define, but it might be different from place to place by, like, millimeters. But it would be slightly different, there would be mm. the official L length on a wall or something that they would pull out. They still out.
4: have the official the official lengths for some of the like the basic units of distance on the wall in the Greenwich Observatory. I saw them the other day. You can turn up uh, and like see how long a meter is and stuff. Um, but also the differences could be more substantial than just millimeters. Uh, could they? Although I don't know how consistent Germany was, but certainly like. Feet could be pretty different and yards could be really quite different.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely have heard that. Um, you see yards I don't know, that range Germany from anywhere like
4: two and a half feet to nearly up to five feet. Um, is a yard,
1: but, um, and I think uh, there was an L that's e- that in some places that was equal to two L's elsewhere, like it was a double length.
2: as uh, when you come onto somebody's sword, your point's
0: about half an L away from their face Mm -hmm. or breast. And that's
2: really interesting to me because that's one of the few indications that we distance that they
0: Fencing it. Exactly, and it implies to me that their game wasn't the tip of the sword touching distance. It was closer than that.
3: was Isn't that after you've already thrown your force log, or he has? Or I don't know if the has passes force log here, even though you didn't strike first, but you strike with advantage. I don't know.
1: It's in the section about always seeking your opponent's openings, and that's when it says once you come onto their sword, your point should never be more than half an L from their face um, or chest.
3: So, it's, so just, and I, it's just about once you've engaged, keep the point close to them.
1: Yeah, which we could, yeah. re- we could read as being a discussion of, you know, ma- maintaining threat and being open to opportunities. But it doesn't give us reasons for that beyond its important.
0: OK. So you think it's more about making tight blade movements rather than describing the fencing?
4: So something I find interesting about the half an L distance is that in um, modern epé, there's an idea of uh, attacking to the depth of the hand as a, like a first action, and then continuing to the body or the face as a second action. Um, and in particular, if somebody has their blade like away or something like, if you if you if you have somebody standing in a kind of epée on guard, the the elbow is pretty close to the body, the hand is pretty much forward from that. This is about the same depth as one L, give or take. Um, um, and if you put your point to roughly that depth on someone, um, and they don't do anything, you can generally hit them very very easily. Uh, you just kind of extend your arms a bit, take a small step, and pow, you have a hit. So taking a bind and getting your point to this position kind of forces somebody to respond before you've actually come to hit them, uh, which is quite an interesting practical uh, practical application.
3: Would you, um, you say it would be considered a point of no
4: escape? Ha. Um, well, if you assume that it's symmetric and they're also at roughly that depth on you, it pretty much is a point of no escape. Um, But what I think is... You're ready and they're not. What? You are ready and they're not. You're ready and Um, they're not. Yeah, it's what Alan Evans would call a one-tempo situation. Um, uh, That is, if you get to this situation and then you launch an attack, they do not have time to react to that attack before it hits. Um, They can only react before you launch. Um, Which is obviously a very favorable situation to be in if you can reach it.
3: Um, have you ever done the direct attack throw with thrusts?
4: Uh, no, actually.
3: I have, and the distance is very close. It's closer yeah. than uh, with a with a cut. It's closer than with a cut. Yeah. So, so um, maybe half an L. Maybe I'll try it again and uh, and measure the distances <laughs> that people are getting and see if it's close to our estimated half an
4: L. Yeah.
1: Of course, your um, L is probably going to be longer than either of ours, Steve. That's true. true. Well, well that's drill drill fine, because his
4: his attack distance is probably going to be longer than ours, too.
1: <laughs> I guess you've got bigger steps than us, too. So that's probably, um, it probably
4: evens out somehow with those legs of touch, yours. A touch I get a fair bit on people in fencing is to essentially extend the point to roughly this distance on them, um, kind of slowly, and then just do a sudden hit while they're trying to decide if they need to do, do something about it. Uh, it works surprisingly well, like uh, once then they start panicking.
1: Your, that, that epay comment is interesting because Meyer says something very similar to that. Jochen Meyer does. Um, he tells you to go first to the, to the weak and then to the strong and then to the body work first to the weak, then to the strong and then to the body. Um,
4: yeah, acting to the, straight, hands acting just to your, your tactical pattern. Um,
1: um, but, so the, other, the the sometimes missing interesting piece here, too, is that it doesn't give you a direction for how far that half an L is, and you can do interesting things if, you're, if your sword ends up half an L to the side of your opponent's face or chest, where it's still a threat and they can't quite see it as well. Um, and that's the place where I often put my sword if I want them to not resist, not parry my stab effectively, so that I, as they're pushing it aside, I can go in with my point. Um, so I think there's sort. it's not just a linear distance forward as much as the general range of where you're close enough to hit um, in all directions
2: and close enough that they can't react effectively. <clears throat>
0: cool. I've got work in a couple of hours, so I'm going to keep this conversation going forward. <laughs> right, we, can, we can speed up. Um, well, we get to speed up quite a bit now because having... So, in fact, there's one how the next section's four openings. There's no gloss. There was already gloss in the the introduction,
1: I guess. The uh, there is gloss of the four openings, just not the muteran and duplarin part. There's a tiny little blob of gloss oh. for just the what the openings are.
2: Yeah, that okay, so it describes it has them. Its own techniques. Yeah, but then it doesn't gloss how to break the four openings yeah
0: the, well, the sounds good yeah the the Krimp pal um has a tiny little bit of gloss, but not very much um, it has
1: it has one interesting thing um where it's it starts off saying the text says that you should strike to his flat um, the way r d l teaches uh, strike to the flat. And then remain strongly on it if you hit. Hmm. But someone has crossed out um to his flat and written in with your flat for that section. Um so the teaching becomes cut cut with with your flat, um, and if you hit his sword, then remain strongly on it, instead of if you hit his flat. So someone has decided that clearly the best crump is the flat crump. And yeah. I don't think that's really anywhere else.
0: It doesn't. This section doesn't add any value to the how you're meant to crump ox discussion. Nope. Then um, it goes on to the failure with a little bit of um, ran out of room so it's added later on so it's a bit jumbled. And
1: Oh, let me just, before we move on to the, uh, to the next important thing, that flat fair does apparently exist in some Japanese sword arts, or flat crump. Um, or I would expect them to use the Spine of the Sword or just do a long edge version. People have shown me specific flat of the katana trumping-like motions, usually from a low guard, Um, and it works pretty well. So it's not like this is just some bullshit. It is a legitimate strike you can use to bat aside someone's sword with strength. It's just not something that any other Lichtenauer source really covers. Do the
4: JSA versions remain in a bind afterwards? I Uh, I normally expect a flat beat like that to take you out of the bind very efficiently.
1: Yeah, I think they're often trying to expel the sword, but it doesn't always work out that way, and it immediately goes into another cut, so they don't stay there to find out.
4: Yeah, the other thing which you can do with a flat beat, um, which is kind of fun as an action, is you can basically, uh, especially if they're not cutting directly at you, so you're using offline footwork as your main form of cover, Um, is you can essentially bounce your sword off theirs uh, into your next action. So you can kind of crump flat, and your sword rebounds upwards, and you push it forward to strike. Um, uh, And that can be quite a fun pattern uh, of
2: movement. Okay, so the Sperhow. Has a gloss. Yeah, it's got
1: one of the longer pieces of gloss outside the general lesson. And it says a whole lot of stuff that's not explicitly in any other text. I don't think it's describing a different cut or anything, but it just has a different way of explaining things. Yeah. I feel like, and it includes is- a statement that you can do the fair with both edges to both sides, which may mean that you can just do whatever you want, or it may be a weird way of saying short edge, right, long edge left. It's hard to hard to know..
0: I- It doesn't have the section about your thumb coming below. So maybe maybe the author allows you to have kind of like the thumb on top twer from the right as well as the with the long edge as well as the short edge one from the right. It definitely goes on about the being able to twer how upwards and downwards to the different targets,
2: which is cool. Mm -hmm. Different openings.
4: Fair to the right elbow remains the best fair.
3: I think the it's fair how is one of the most consistent among all of the, um, I guess German sources in general. It's always like it's always your anchor. If you look at something weird like Jürgen Wilhelm and the fair <laughs> how is still pretty much the same as it is in RDL, even though everything else is totally different. And in Meyer, I'm pretty sure it's like this, basically the same too. The
1: uh, the other interesting thing with this is I think it might be the only source that explicitly tells you that you can use it to thrust. Which you know, there's always a theory that goes around that all of your cuts should be able to be turned into thrusts, but most of the texts don't really talk about the Tvaras being a thrusting action. Um, but it tells you you can attack with the edge or the point using it. Um in
4: his famous... Which is obviously
1: true, but usually left unsaid.
4: Yeah. In his famous Shison video, Mashik Talaga has some kind of some demo sequences of Tverhaus thrown as thrusts with the point, like these long sort of hooking wrapping thrusts. They're pretty cool. Mm-hmm.
3: I did one last night by accident. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say he also speaks very highly of the Tverhau. It's, it's like his favorite thing ever.
1: Yeah, but no cut company. is as good as honest, as ready or as fierce as the cross, crosswise cut.
3: He even mentions it in the uh, common lessons. He's like, "Yeah, be careful. He might if he throws a knoxlog, it might be in how, then you'll be in trouble." That was paraphrasing.
1: <laughs> he has another another interesting um, description. He's got th- This book is interesting because mm. it has several funny analogies for ways of, of conceptualizing what you're doing. And in this one I just had it and then I lost it again. He says... It's the one where it wraps around like a belt, right? Yeah. He says the Twerhau oh, How can I not find it?
0: It's got an interesting section as well at the end of the huh. Twerhau gloss where it talks about how other masters, diss this the warehouse, saying that it's uh, coming from a
2: shortened sword and that it's weak I, it's a, uh, I that's a, I find it amusing because
1: he he says, uh, it goes the point goes well and winds or turns around his head like a belt.
0: <laughs> nice.
1: So to me, that sort of sounds like the a sort of a a pulley type action where you're rotating and the cut rotates. And yeah, I don't know. Well, it surely it's, this means
4: this is just a flat wire how delivered with a very flexible fetter, and the point like bends all the way around his head. I buy it. Yeah, prel how. Yeah, one
0: hundred percent. I buy it. Um, the
2: the section about other masters. Are there legitimate masters dissing with Warehouse being from the shortened sword reminds me about arms. I mean it is definitely uh, what you can do about it. Yeah. the cutting tournament, but I cannot do them under pressure. I can't yeah. Like, shield house, no problem. Crimp house, no problem. Tur house, 100% failure. And
3: I got to the point where I was cutting with them pretty consistently, even with my Fury. So...
4: Yeah, I can do them pretty consistently now, like just hanging out with a mat. Um, but I thought I had them. I failed them at IGX 2018, and I went like, every time I had access to cutting between then and 2019. I did like a whole bunch of fairhouse, um, and I was like, "Yeah, this will be great." And I turned up to IGX 2019, entered the cutting competition, and failed my fairhouse. Um, so
3: <laughs> I, I attempted one on uh, on two mats during the combat con cutting competition. But I got through the first one I didn't get through the second one. So I guess I mean that's no a point. hell
4: of a good start.
3: Also a failure. No James <laughs> Clark, but yeah. there's only to be fair, there was only a little bit of mat left. It was like a special cut. So but I also failed both my overhauls. so what can you do? Um
1: this sometimes the episode just coming... Going longer than we expected. Do we want to break this in half?
2: Yes. Um, We can do it in post. Okay. Well, I
1: think what I really mean is do we want to stop and come back in a week and keep going?
0: Yes. Should we do that?
4: I'm fine with that. Maybe I'll have actually read some stuff in advance for next week.
0: All right. Let's do that then. All right. We've run out of steam at this point. We're going to come back to the topic of what MS three two two seven A actually has to say for itself. Looking at the sections after the Zornhow next week. Uh, I've been your host, Mike Smaurage, and joining us this week have been our panel of Michael Chidister, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. Thank you for listening.
2: <laughs> Funny. <laughs> <laughs>